Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. Last week, we started with the first three plagues. That was fun, right? And uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the next six. And then, Lord willing, next week, we're going to finish off with the tenth plague, which is the Passover of the Angel of Death. And also, we have the opportunity to have communion next week. And so, that is going to be a beautiful morning together. But last week, we discovered that the plagues were a response to a question of Pharaoh. And I shared with you that this is a question that all of us ask at one point or another. Every single generation asks this question. He put it this way, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And this is an important question because if God isn't God, then he's not worthy of my worship. He's not worthy of my avodah. That's the Hebrew word for worship, for work, for service, and for slavery. All of it is the same word. He's not worthy of my avodah if he's not God. But if God is God, then every knee should bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And so it is a very important question for us, for those of us who are longtime Christians, for those of us who don't believe in God, or those of us who are questioning whether or not God exists, this is an important question. And Pharaoh outlines it for us. And remember, Pharaoh, he's not not asking this question as a religious atheist. He's asking the question as a religious pluralist. We know that most historians have shared with us that there were at least 1,500, perhaps even 2,000 plus different Egyptian gods. And so it wasn't offensive to Pharaoh that the Hebrews had selected a god of their own to worship him, to give their avodah to him. That wasn't concerning. The issue, according to Pharaoh, is that this god claimed to have some sort of authority over him. And that was the pinch point. We can tolerate a God who is the creator of the world, who's kind of like that genie in the bottle that that we can call upon if ever we're in a pinch or things are not going well. But one thing that we cannot tolerate today is some sort of deity imposing his will, his authority upon our lives. And so that's the pinch for us too. That's the struggle that we have. We say things like we, we behave as though we're smarter than God. Now, I know, I know, we would, we would never say that out loud. No, we just live that way. We just live that way. That we are smarter than God, and what we really need for him to do is just to, call, to come upon our call, but not to impose his way into our life. And this reveals to us that we're a lot more like Pharaoh than we care to admit. We're a lot more like the people of Israel than we care to admit. 
I shared with you last week that every single time, according to our Jewish friends, when they celebrate the Seder Passover meal, even to this day, they take the four cups of wine. I want to rehearse them again for you because it's going to pop up again as we look at the next six plagues. So the four cups are as follows, and they reveal themselves in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. The first one is when God says, I will bring you out. And that is a geographical liberation. That's the first cup that they drink. And then in the same verse, he says, I will free you, which is a physical liberation. The bonds have been taken off and they are now set free. And then in verse seven, it says, I will redeem you, which is a legal liberation or a jurisprudential liberation. And of these three cups, we want them every day and twice on Sundays. We love the freedom from... When God delivers us from that agony, delivers us from that bondage so that we can be set free. But there's a fourth cup. And the fourth cup is the one that we tend to struggle with when God says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is the spiritual liberation that God brings. And we resist the fourth cup. We struggle with the fourth cup. We love the freedom from we resist the freedom to. And to this day, we have the same heart that Pharaoh has. We have the sin nature, the traitor within, just like he did too. And so we don't want these first three cups. But here's the good news. We serve a gracious and merciful God. He knows the hardness of our human hearts. He knows that we are prone to wander. He knows that we place our hopes in things that are false in created things that will never be able to sustain our hope. And he wants to reveal those things to us. And so here's the plain main thing that we looked at last week. God in his mercy exposes our false hopes that we might turn and worship him. That we might turn and worship him. And that's what we saw in the first three plagues last week. Were the plagues intended to punish Pharaoh? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Were they used to liberate Israel from the yoke of Pharaoh? Yes, absolutely. Were they used to showcase God's power over the creation he has made and his power over the false idols that have mouths but do not speak, ears but do not hear, hands and feet but do not move? Yes, they were. All of those things, yes. But the vital part of the plagues was to show Egypt and Israel and us the powerlessness of our misplaced worship. That even today, we might take a good thing and make it ultimate, and on account of that, it becomes a treacherous thing to our hearts. And so, sure, you're probably not worshiping little shrines or little dolls, But you don't have to do that to be far from God. All you need to do is to take a created thing and to make it an ultimate thing, and there you are. And so God wants to expose the idolatry of our hearts so that we might turn and worship him, so that we might see him for who he truly is, so that we might give our avodah back to God. Because you worship something, The only question is, what do you worship? What do you worship? And that's what we're going to see again today as we flesh it out further. So if you have your Bibles, look with me. Exodus chapter 8, starting at verse 20. 
This is the fourth plague, the plague of the flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river. I love this because as you might recall, all the way back in Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh issued a decree to murder Hebrew baby boys of which Moses was one and to throw them where? into the Nile River. And so now here's Moses at the age of 80 and he's confronting Pharaoh at the Nile. I love that, that's so cool. And, and he says to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship, circle, highlight, underline, they may give their avodah to me. And if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. So let's just stop right there for a second. Something really important just took place, and I want you to have the eyes to see it. As we move forward, I want you to be able to count the number of times in which you hear some rendition of, so that you will know that I am the Lord, or so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this place. The number of times in which God communicates that message, because again, it is a response to Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should give my avodah to him? Who is the Lord that I should recognize the authority of his, of his commands over my life? And here's God giving an answer so that you may know that I am the Lord. And he says the same thing to us. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of the officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Now that's different, right? Because the command of God is let my people go. And yet Pharaoh says, why don't you just stay here? Stay here in the land. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our God, would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifice that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. So one of the things that we see through the ten plagues is how Pharaoh tries to barter with God. That's kind of a way of thinking about it. I want to show you that through Pharaoh, there's at least three ways that we still do this today, ways that we negotiate, ways that we barter with God, or the way I put it in your note sheet, the ways that we give God our half-hearted obedience. Because again, we want the first three cups, we want the freedom from, we just don't want the freedom to. And we squirm a little bit when God makes commands upon our lives. And so here's the first way that we see through Pharaoh. We give half-hearted obedience when We negotiate. We negotiate. The demand of God to Pharaoh is, let my people go. And do you see his counteroffer? His counteroffer is, well, I'm not going to let you go, that's for sure. But uh, maybe you could just offer a sacrifice right here, right in Goshen. Is that fair? Is that a good deal? That's fair? 
He's like a real estate agent's worst nightmare, right? So the real estate agent uh, says, this house right here is a million dollars. And then you come up and you go, all right, I'm, I'll, I'll give you my offer tomorrow. All right, here's my offer, $5. Okay, fine, fine, fine. $10, take it or leave it. And the real estate agent's like, what? No, you're, you're not going to get it for that. I wish. I do wish. But anyway, so what we have here is a negotiation that's not really a negotiation. Because what God always does with us is he does not play games with his creation. He does not negotiate with his creation. He's not going to short sell you on the plan that he has for your life. And yet Pharaoh still tries to do it. Pharaoh does not want to listen to God. Let's pick up here chapter 9 with the plague of livestock. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may avodah, worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, camels, and on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction, there it is again, another distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found out that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Plague of boils. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh and it will become a fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on the people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Sidebar here, these furnaces are exactly the same ones that Israelites had to use in order to make their bricks without straw. Do you remember that? When uh, Moses initially came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I'm not having this, and I'm going to make things even worse for the people of Israel, where they now have to make bricks, but you don't get any straw. And here's the soot of those bricks that they were made without straw, and most certainly when Pharaoh created this decree and they didn't reach their quota, it was full-on massacre of the people of Israel. Many of them were put to death because they didn't reach their quota. And now here's the very soot that was made, thrown up into the air like LeBron James before a basketball game, and boils break out across all of the people. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were upon them and all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The first time where we see that not did, Pharaoh didn't harden his own heart, but the Lord hardened his heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Jump down to verse 22. This is the plague of hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall over Egypt on people and animals and everything growing in the field of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent, excuse me, 
thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained down on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Third distinction. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. So here's the second thing. I, I, there's, there's two more things that we see here in the way that we interact with God. The second one I put in your note sheet is when we offer what I'm just going to call seasonal worship. Right? We saw this in week one. One of the ways that we know that our hearts are truly treacherous is how we can cry out to God when calamity befalls us. Right? So when things are going really, really well, we don't really need God. I can take it from here. But when things go really poorly, what do we do? We cry out to God. We say, God, help me, deliver me, save me. But then what happens when we see respite from our pain and suffering? What happens when we see the alleviation of our sufferings? If we're not careful, the spiritual condition of our hearts is to forget the grace and the mercy of God and to say, you know what? I just pulled up my bootstraps and everything went fine from there. We spit on the grace of God. People come up to you and they say, my goodness, how did you, how did you overcome that obstacle in your life? I just pulled up my bootstraps. I'm the master of my soul. I did it all myself. And we forget the grace of God. But then we see a third way that we do this, which is the most treacherous of all because it's the most subtle and subversive. And Pharaoh just did it in this last plague. It's when we manipulate God. When we manipulate God. So one of the things that we see in Pharaoh is that in challenging or in difficult situations, there's what appears to be repentance, but actually it's not repentance at all. It's manipulation through what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. The Apostle Paul, I think, uh, helps delineate between these two things really well in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says this, godly sorrow brings about repentance. And that's the Greek word metanoia. It literally means to make a U-turn, 180 degree turn. You're going north, you turn south. You start following God. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings about death. So let me try and give an example of how we do this today with uh, the help of our kids. Kids, uh, I know we have some third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders in here. Have you ever had a time in which you did something bad, like maybe you hit your brother or your sister, or you lied to your parents, or you did something that you weren't supposed to do. And then your parents might come up to you and, and say something like, because you did this, 
I'm going to give you a consequence. Like, you have to go to your room, or no video games for a week, or you can't go to your friend's house. And most of the kids are like, stop giving them ideas. But maybe they did something like that. But then if you get that consequence, maybe instantly you said, oh, mom, dad, I'm so sorry. Please, I'll never do it again. And then your parents might have asked you this question. Are you sorry because what you did was wrong? Or are you sorry for the consequence? You see the difference? Are you sorry about what you did? Or are you sorry about the consequence that I just gave you? And in the same way, what we see with Pharaoh is he's not sorry about what he did. He's sorry that he got caught. He's upset with the consequence of his actions, not the actions in and of themselves. And that's the difference. And notice, he even uses religious language, doesn't he? He says, I have sinned. I'm in the wrong. I and the people of Egypt are in the wrong. Please forgive me, God. He uses all the religious language of repentance. But really what he's trying to do is to manipulate and to control And Moses calls him out on it. That's how the story ends in that sequence. When Moses says, you know what? I I know that you still don't fear the Lord. You're still not interested in following God's righteous rules. You're just worried about the consequences and the fact that you got caught. And so I shared this with you last week. A really difficult message of the 10 plagues is to let you know and to let me know that no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. No one stabs you in the back more than you stab yourself in the back. Because of our sin nature, the traitor within, our human hearts are treacherous, even in our repentance, even in our sorrow. If we're not careful, we're just out to manipulate God in order to get what we want. Not because we're truly repentant. And we see it in Pharaoh, and we see it in ourselves. Look at chapter 10. Verse 21. The plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. Quick question for those of you who are followers of Jesus, where else have we heard of darkness for three days? Take note of that. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship Avodah the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave flocks and herds behind. He's still negotiating with God. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present Uh, to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us as well. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. I love this. This is an incredible passage because we've been looking at all these ways that we try to manipulate God or control God or negotiate with God, but God won't play those games with his creation right? He won't short sell us on the plan that he has for us. And such a really cool element of this story is that Moses understands this element of what it means to worship God. And so for Israel, they have one clear command from God. You must go out into the wilderness for three days. 
Three days is just long enough that you're now short on water supply, you're short on food, and you're in the middle of a wilderness, which is the place of death. But they're just going in obedience. They don't know what the next step is going to be. And isn't that the same for us? I think a lot of times when we follow God, we're like, all right, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to follow you. I just need to know what the plan is from start to finish. I trust your control. I just need some control. Right? God, I I trust everything you're going to do. I just need to know everything from point A to point Z. And then everything will be fine. But God doesn't do that with us. All he says to Israel is go out into the wilderness and then I'll give you further instructions and we have to go. And many of you in this room have had moments like that in your own life. Moments of testing. Moments of wilderness. Moments of questions. And the only thing that you can see is your next step of obedience, not what God's sovereign plan is in the midst of it. And that's a very difficult place to be. And then we finish chapter 10, verse 27 to 29. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So for the remainder of our time, I I want us to, again, look at this central question of who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Because that's the ultimate question. That's what these plagues are all about. And I want to help you see with your own eyes that these plagues are not just miracles, though they are. They're, They're not just afflictions, though they are. They are trying to reveal to us why we should obey the Lord and why we should delight in God's command to do so, and why we should drink deeply the fourth cup of salvation when God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Give your avodah, your worship, to me. And one of the ways that we see this is through how unremarkable the plagues really are. Now, I know that might sound a little bit strange, but they truly are unremarkable. Like, if if the plan through these miracles was just to prove that he is Lord and there is no other, I can think of a million different ways to perform these miracles so that everyone would know instantly. So if I was God, I know that's dangerous, if I was God, here's how I would do it. I would say, all right, Moses, here's what you're going to do. Go before Pharaoh and his officials, have everyone in the courts, and then say to Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to turn all of your subjects into chickens. And then he's going to say, you're not going to do that. Boom, chickens, they're all balking around, running all over the place. And then you're going to go for the jugular. And you're going to say, if you don't let my people go, you're next. And he's going to fall down and he's going to worship and he's going to let them all go, right? Or if it was a Hollywood film, it'd probably be a, a little bit more dark where he would probably say something like, if you don't let my people go, all your subjects will burst into flames. And say, I don't believe you. Boom, they all burst into flames. And then with the best Charleston Heston voice you can muster, you say, you're next, right? And he's going to fall down and he's going to worship God and they're gone. They're going to go for it. So why, why does God use plagues? Why natural catastrophes? 
If the only sole focus of the miracles is to prove that he is God and there is no other, there's many, many more different ways that you can do this. Well, there's something that we are learning about the plagues and why God chose to do it in this way. So let me give you an example of this. Did you know that biblical scholars are torn on whether the Nile River actually turned into blood or if it was more of a natural catastrophe, like due to heat, we have um, some of the toxins in the water killed the algae, and if all the algae died, then we know that the Nile would turn red. Now, I'm, tell- I'm not trying to tell you that's what happened. I'm just saying there's a debate about that and whether it was actual blood or all the algae dying and toxins in the water. Either way, it was not drinkable water. But think about this for a second. If the Nile River turned into blood or there were toxins in the blood, would not all the inhabitants of the Nile, i.e. the frogs, leave the Nile and search for water elsewhere and come into Egypt? And if all the frogs came into Egypt and then eventually died and we had animal carcasses everywhere, would there not be gnats and flies? And if there was catastrophes of blood and pathogens and flies eating the carcasses, would there not be ecological disasters and boils and and animals dying due to all the ecological disasters? So again, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you they're not miraculous. They are, but there's a natural element to the story as well. We see that these are playing out in degrees of severity as well. I shared with you that the first two plagues are more omens than anything else, right? They are indictments against Pharaoh and Egypt for the slaughter of baby boys. And then the next two, flies and gnats, they're more of an annoyance than anything else. And then we see this progression from there of of boils and then the loss of their food supply, which ultimately would bring about death. There's a progression of severity from one thing to the next. A slow ramping up of harm. And even in this, we see the mercy of God. God is always trying to do the very least with each additional step for us to turn to him in repentance. And we see the heart of God even in that. But as time goes on, we see how creation is slowly destroying itself. And this is the point. Look, look at the plagues. The weather destroys the animals, right? The insects destroy the plants. The weather destroys the plants. And the insects destroy the animals. We see a disintegration of the community that God has made. And then it leads to the most beautifully tragic part in the ninth plague. And it's actually the complete reversal of what we see in Genesis chapter one. So I'm gonna read something to you. I'm gonna look for some crowd participation in just a second. The passage is on the screen. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. What's the next word? Help me out. Darkness. Darkness. The ninth plague. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, most of your Bibles say. Some say over the chaos. So what do we see in the creation story? It starts with darkness. It starts with chaos. 
And from the chaos comes shalom, justice, and harmony. All of God's created things, humans and plants and insects and animals and weather, all of it functioning as a pure um, copacetic whole. Everything is working together in perfect harmony. But then what do we see with the plagues? The exact reversal of those things. The disintegration of the creation that God has made good, that everything is falling apart, and ultimately it leads back to darkness. It is the undoing of the creation story. So the question for us is, what's the plain main thing? What is God revealing to us through the nine plagues? It's a reiteration of something that I shared with you last week. Last week I said, freedom without the Lord is a desert, right? You can take the first three cups, you can go out into the wilderness, but it's still the wilderness. Without the fourth cup, it's the wilderness and surely, most certainly, you will die. And so we see a reiteration of the same thing, only said in a new way. Freedom without the Lord is chaos, darkness, and death. Chaos, darkness, and death. So let's get really, really practical for a moment. What God is saying is that his law, his authority, and his commands, they're not arbitrary. They're not random. They're not made up. It's not as though God is some dictatorial deity imposing his will upon us just because he likes to have the authority and the power. He's not just saying, here are my laws, here are my commands. If you don't listen to them, I'm going to come down and smite you. No, his laws are natural. There's a natural cause and effect relationship that God is trying to tell you, if you listen to my laws, if you listen to my precepts, it will bring about joy and life to the fullest because it reveals the manner in which I made you best. And so we have to look at the law less as a list of arbitrary commands and more as a healing antidote for our lives. And that's what the plagues reveal as well. Let me give you an example of this. Um, some of you know last week I was diagnosed with a rare condition called rhabdo. Uh, basically, I exercised for too hard for too long, and then toxins and creatine, uh, the breakdown of muscle fibers got into my bloodstream, and it can be potentially serious. Creatine levels in your blood are supposed to be 20, and last week they were a little over 17,000. And that was six days after the exercise, and so it was a pretty dangerous thing. But the doctor said to me, I'm fine by the way, the doctor said to me, you need to take lots of IVs, you need to drink lots of water, no more heavy lifting, and get lots of rest. But imagine for a moment if I was there in the ER talking to my doctor, and I said to him, how dare you? You mean to tell me what, you, what I should do to my life with all of your sanctimonious rules that I should obey? This is just the naked expression of power through doctoral control against his patients. I'm not going to do that, and then I run out. Or what if I said something like, you know what, I'm not going to follow your rules. The only way you're going to get me to do this is if you put me in chains, if you Arrest me. Are you going to arrest me? Are you going to make me go into prison because I'm not going to listen to your rules? Otherwise, I'm not going. And then I run out of there. What's the doctor going to say? 
other than thinking maybe toxins entered into my brain, he's going to say to me, here's what you got to know, Justin. What I'm trying to communicate to you are not arbitrary sets of rules. And here's the principle I really want to lay before you this morning. If I violate the directives of the doctor, I'm at the very same moment violating the directives to myself. I'm just harming myself. I'm not harming him. He has no dog in the race. He just wants to tell me what's helpful, what's going to bring about human flourishing, the best way for me to recover. And in the same way, that's God times infinity times a million and more because not only is God the greatest physician the world has ever known, he is also the creator of the universe and knows how we function best. And not only is he a physician who just objectively is giving advice, but he created me and he loves me. I think even with this doctor, he was a really nice guy. But if I didn't listen, he'd just say, you're lost. And he'd move on with his life. But my heavenly father would grieve if I didn't listen to his laws because he knows it would bring about my death and my destruction. And so he gives this not as advice, but as directives based on the way the world works. And so again, we need to look at these plagues less as an arbitrary set of commands by God and more as directives based from the creator of the universe who knows what it means for us to function best. And so here's what the plagues help us see. God in his mercy wants to expose our false hopes, our idolatry, and our self-harm so that we might turn and worship him and see him for who he truly is. So let me give you two uh, quick real-life biblical examples of this. One, one example of God's law is when God says to us, you must not have anything above me. You must not elevate the avodah, the worship of any created thing, even the important things in your life. Your spouse, your kids, your influence, your business, your work, none of those things should have your ultimate worship because if you do that, if you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it will become treacherous in your heart because it was not meant to sustain your worship. It's like an example of this is like when you get married. Right? Maybe you had uh, some idealistic distortion and you're like, she's the one. Everything's going to be perfect after I marry her and nothing could ever be bad. And then a week later, you're like, you put your toothbrush where? You know, like we have these weird ideas that everything's going to be perfectly fine, but they're not. Created things cannot sustain your worship. Only I can do that. Or let me give you another example. God says, you must forgive your neighbor. It is a relational command, not a relational piece of advice. But God is not just arbitrarily, randomly saying you should do that. What he's saying is, if you don't forgive your neighbor, then you are like someone who's drinking poison waiting for the other person to die. It will destroy your life. It will destroy your soul. And not only that, we see the ultimate example of forgiveness through King Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. And so there is a disintegration of self when you choose not to forgive your neighbor, but you take the forgiveness of God in spades. It will destroy your life. As hard as it is for you to know this, this is what God is trying to communicate to his people, that the only way for you to have life is to listen to my righteous decrees. 
but I can't stop just in this moment. Because you could take everything that I just shared with you, and you could act like Pharaoh when he was trying to manipulate God. You could say, okay, here's what I got to do. I, I got to follow all God's righteous rules. And if I follow his rules, then I can get what I want. And then I can manipulate and control, and everything's going to work out the way I want it to work. And so we can't stop with that. How do we have the right mindset, the right heart, to see what God is communicating to us? And we see this with the ninth plague. Look again, if you have your Bibles open at the ninth plague. Just before the plague of darkness, which is the complete undoing of creation, the crescendo moment, God goes, has Moses go before Pharaoh one more time, and he essentially says, listen, I am sending a plague of hail, so get your cattle out of the field. Get your farmhands out of the field. Quickly, get them out, because hail is going to come, and anything that is out in the field will ultimately be destroyed. Why would a judgmental God say that? Why is God pulling his pun punches? If God is trying to simply reveal that he is the creator of the universe, he is Lord over all, why is he pulling his punches? Why doesn't he just leave them out in the field so that they die and they see that the Lord is God? Well, because that's not the plain main thing. The point of what he is doing is this. God brings salvation to all who put on the work of faith. The problem with the world isn't Pharaoh. The problem with the world is not the Egyptians. The problem with the world is not the government. The problem with the world is not the left or the right or political pundits or that person who stabbed you in the back. The problem with the world is the treachery of your own human heart, the sinful nature of your own human heart that leads to a disintegration and a separation between you and God. And the only way that we can truly be saved is under the shelter of his wings. And so the plain main thing in this eighth plague is that some, not all, some heed the caution of God. We see this in Exodus 9 verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And we see this even more vividly next week with the Passover lamb. Hot tip, it's not the Egyptians who receive the plague of the death of their firstborn son. It's not the Egyptians. It's any person who does not have the mark of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Whether Egyptians or Hebrews, the only thing that saves you is the blood of the lamb. And so we see this right here with the plague of darkness, with the plague of hail, that God is revealing his heart to his people. Come back to me. See me for who I truly am. I love you. And I will come from heaven down to earth to get you back. And that's ultimately what God says to Pharaoh. Chapter 9, verse 15. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you with your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Like my idea. You're all going to go up in flames. Poof. I could have done that but I didn't. I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So in other words, I'm not sending these plagues to save Hebrews. After all, spoiler alert, they're going to use and abuse my salvation. After they go into the promised land, they're going to act just like the Egyptians. They're going to forget about me, they're going to worship false gods, and they're going to go back out into dispersion, out into the wilderness. That's how their story ends. But not for us. Not for us. Centuries later, darkness covered the surface of the deep once again. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, just like in Exodus chapter 10, and from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered the surface of the world. And there's Jesus on a cross, and he cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a little bit later, he looks up to heaven and he says, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit. And what ensues is three days of spiritual darkness. But on the third day, he rises again. There's the creation narrative. There's the undoing of creation. And there is the redemption of God's creation and all that he has made. And the only reason why he does what he does is because he wants to bring you back into right relationship with him. Because every single time we break his law, it breaks his heart. It rips him apart. And so he will do whatever it takes to bring you back even at the expense of his own blood, even at the expense of darkness covering his very soul so that we can have right relationship with him. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.